This morning, I just want to share some words, seven reasons, basically, to be thankful. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Psalm 103. We'll be looking at that in a moment. Psalm 103. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there around you somewhere in the seat, underneath the seat. But it's interesting that this time of year, um, this coming week we celebrate Thanksgiving. And uh, the eve before Thanksgiving is when Abraham Lincoln for the last time proclaimed the National Day of Thanksgiving. It was April 11th, 1865, two days after the Civil War ended with Robert E. Lee's surrender. Four days before the president was assassinated. And so our national day of Thanksgiving is a good time to remember uh, the president who really had more to do with the institution of Thanksgiving and the actual practice of thanking God than any other uh, president. And I just want to read for you this morning before our message, the proclamation that Abraham Lincoln wrote. And this was his last proclamation before his death. It says, By the President of the United States, the year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart, which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggressions, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained. The laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense, have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines, as well as iron and coal, as of these precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield, and the country rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel has devised nor has any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger, for our sins, have nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole people America. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States 
and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November. Next, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lamentable civil strife strife which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of our nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace harmony tranquility and union in testimony whereof i have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the united states to be affixed done at the city of washington the third day of October, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th, by President Abraham Lincoln. It's amazing when you hear him talk about the sins of the nation and the need for repentance and those who forgot where our blessings come from, Uh, You could read that today as we did and apply it to us as a country and as a people. Well, in Psalm 103 this morning, I want to point out basically seven reasons why we should be thankful. Seven reasons, and I just want to read this uh, text for us. So if you turn over to Psalm 103, I'll read through it, and you can follow along in your Bibles. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 103, it says... Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, 
to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of the word, of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Have you ever wondered what God really thinks about you? Have you ever wondered what God remembers that we forget? I think one of the greatest barriers that we have to knowing God better may be how much we know about how much God knows about us. (laughs) When you stop and think about it, we struggle with God because we feel so bad about ourselves. And if we know the truth about ourselves, I mean, think about how much more God knows about us. We can't fool Him. Sometimes we don't want to read our Bible. Sometimes we don't want to pray. We don't want to think about God because, in a way, it's almost like we're looking in a mirror, and we feel like looking in that mirror and go, boy, what a big disappointment you are, speaking of ourselves. We look at ourselves and say, we ought to be further along spiritually in our lives by now. We ought to be better off by now. And we've all felt that way, I think, on occasion in our Christian walk. I mean, there's times in the Christian walk when you're on top of the mountain and everything's going great, and then there's times when you're down in the valley and, man, you just can't see where the two ends meet. Sometimes it's a hard month, it's a hard week or quarter or year. And we're now at the end of what seems to be a trying year in so many people's lives. One writer captures this truth in one simple sentence. He says, I think we run from God rather than to Him because we know our own hearts all too well, yet we barely know his at all. (laughs) I probably, we don't need to spend a lot of time here this morning convincing you that you're a sinner. (laughs) I mean, I think we all have a pretty well good idea that we're all fall short of God's glory. We're all sinner in God's eyes. The Bible said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's very clear. Um, you probably know that truth to be true about yourself if you've ever done anything wrong. But it's the other side of that that we need to talk about. It's, it's what we want to... It's, it's, it's the idea that we don't know God's heart very well. He knows ours, but we don't know His very well. And I think here's where Psalm 103 can come in and kind of give us a little bit of light, shed a bit, little bit of light on um, His heart. I think no other chapter in the Bible so clearly reveals God's compassion for his people. I mean, if you're wondering what God thinks about you, let's take a journey through this psalm, and you're going to find out in the next several minutes exactly what God thinks about you. And we're going to look at seven liberating truths, seven reasons to give thanks to God for who he is. Seven 
truths about God's heart. The first one there, we see in verse 6 and 7. It says in verse 6 and 7, the, word, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The first point is simply this. I want you to understand this morning that God loves to help those who are in need. He loves to help the needy of this world. That word oppressed simply means those who can't help themselves. In the Old Testament especially, it spoke of those who were widows, those who were orphans or foreigners, the poor. And when you stop and you think about when you're, you're tempted to take advantage of others because we're strong and they are weak, God says, you know what? Think about this first. He takes the side of the weak. Our God takes the side of the weak. Our God keeps his eyes on the helpless. And when others hurt them, he notices. And I think that somehow he moves the balance of the scales of justice in their favor. There are days and times when it's hard to believe that, especially in light of a lot of the things going on in our own country and in foreign countries. Think of this recent storm that left so many people literally homeless out on the street in the rain and the cold back east. But for a believer, we should truly understand that that should be a, a rock-bottom uh, foundation for us. I mean, if all of history is a book, I don't think we've really even reached the final chapter yet. We're somewhere near the end. But we're not sure how far we have to go. But we know this much. Eventually, God is going to bring everything to light. Eventually, God will judge, and he'll do so without, with impartiality. In that day, there's not going to be any hiding. There's not going to be any excuse making. In that day, you're not going to be able to bribe your way out. There's no going to be a way of escape. All those who labor for a better world and a more just society and those who just stretch out that helping hand, you have to believe this or you're not, just, you're not going to do it. There was an uh, individual this morning when I got to the church out here sitting on the bench. And I got down here about 6 o'clock, and I noticed him sitting there, and, and I went in the fellowship hall, made a cup of coffee, and came out in the fellowship, and I, and I said, uh, hey, you want a cup of coffee? And I kind of startled him, you know, a big plastic bag over him. And I invited him to the service, but I, I, he's not here. So. But, um, so I invited him in the fellowship hall and made some of the, <laughs> the dinner that we had from last night, heated up in the microwave for him, and and uh, uh, gave him a hot cup of coffee, and we sat down, and for about two hours just talked about, just, I just let him talk. He just wanted somebody to talk to. I just let him talk, and eventually he shared the gospel with him, and, and uh, these kind of, he just had his pack ripped off and all this stuff. Um, and so I, you know, I had the opportunity to minister to this guy, who basically there's, there's nothing he could have done for us or our church. And I'm going to be real honest with you this morning, after about an hour and a half, sitting there with him and hearing his story and letting him go on and on, 
I started thinking, can't you eat a little faster? <laughs> Come on, eat a little. In my mind, I'm sitting there with this guy, and I'm hearing him, and I'm being nice, but I'm kind of looking at my iPhone, and I'm going, okay, you know, it's, it's 7.30. I got I to get some stuff done here this morning. That's why I came over here at 6 o'clock, not 8 o'clock, and now the Lord has brought this person here. You know, come on, God, you know what's on the schedule. And, and I found myself growing impatient with this guy. And I was reminded of my message that God cares for the oppressed. I thought, here's a guy that's from Washington State, used to be from here, basically on the street, just had his stuff ripped off. And I thought, you know, God, I don't know how this is going to work out this morning, but I'm just going to take my time with this. And so I noticed he ate everything on the plate but the turkey. And we talked for like 15 minutes. I thought, well, maybe he doesn't eat meat or something. So I said, are you done? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to finish it off. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, now it's close to eight. You know, and I'm just, you know, I'm pressing that, that time frame again. Finally, you know, he finished it up and got him another cup of coffee and gave him a couple Pepsis. And we kind of walked outside here and uh, he got his other stuff. And finally he said, well, you probably have something to, you have other stuff to do, I'm sure. I said, yeah, actually I do, you know, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, you know, I said, but you're welcome to come back at 10 o'clock, we have some food afterwards and everything, his name's John, by the way, and uh, nice guy, you know, and, and was able to share the gospel with him, and, and uh, out here, standing here, probably took another 20 minutes before finally, you know, we parted our ways. So God was really putting um, this message to the test in my own heart. And, um, you know, it's neat to know that if you're needy, that God is on your side. That God is for the oppressed. And that's a, a, a great place to start because you have to be needy to come to Christ in the first place. You have to acknowledge that you have a need of a Savior, that you're a sinner. Um, if you don't have that, then you can't go the rest of the way. So God is a friend to those who are oppressed, to the needy. Secondly, we see here in verse 8 that he shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. Look at what it says in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, there's, there's four great things here in this verse that speak of the attributes of God. The first one is that God is compassionate. That God is compassionate. He doesn't just judge us. The Bible says that through Christ, he pardons us. He's compassionate toward us. He's merciful. It's the same kind of idea there, merciful. He's compassionate. But he's also, it says, gracious. God gives us what we don't deserve. Remember when I, when I was young, I got in trouble for doing something, and my brother showed me great grace. You know, he 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 gave me what I didn't deserve. I, I deserved some discipline. I, I deserved a lot of discipline for what I did, but he showed me grace. And we do that with our own children, and I'm sure you do too. You know, our Lord is a compassionate God. He pardons us. He's also a gracious God because he gives us what we don't deserve. If God gave us what we all deserve, what would we get? We would get hell. Bottom line. But also, I love this. Is it says, the Lord is slow to anger. 
The Lord is slow to anger. I mean, if God's angry, it's taking some time for him to get there, is basically what the idea is. I mean, some people respond differently. You know, some people have a, a very quick temper. You know, you just say one little thing and boom, they're just seeing red. Other people, it kind of builds up and then boom, they see red. Other people, you know, you can do whatever you want and they don't ever see red. I don't understand those people. I, I'm not one of those people. I wish I was. But the Lord is slow to anger. I mean, are you thankful for that? Think if God saved you and then from then on, he was quick to anger with you. Every time you stepped out of line, whap, whoa. We'd be whapping all over the place, all of us, all the time. Would not be good. So God is compassionate. He's gracious, it says in verse 8. He's slow to anger. And, and that idea has that he's patient with us when we fall, when we mess up. I like that. It's kind of like when you're, you're, you're teaching your little kid how to ride a bicycle. With no wheels. You know, you don't just put them on a two-wheeled bike and say, here, have fun, you know, and shove them down the road. I mean, they, they'd destroy themselves. They'd never get on a bike. Again, they'd be traumatized. No, you put training wheels on, and you take time, and you let them get comfortable with that. And then, you know, when the training wheels finally come off, you, you walk alongside of them, and you make sure that they don't fall. Eventually, they're going to fall, and you know that, and they have to, to learn. But, you know, you're patient with them. And when they do fall, you're there to pick them up and brush them off and encourage them and get them back on the bike. And that's what God does. God is not a God that's in heaven that's up there with giant killjoy, divine killjoy, that every time you, know, you want to have fun, God's there with a big hammer going, don't you dare, I'm going to squash you. That's not the God of the Bible. God says he's given us abundantly all things to enjoy. And the fact of the matter is we all mess up. We all sin. We're, we're, we're stuck in this sinful world. We're stuck in this sinful body. And until it is, he comes back and we're glorified, we're made like him, then you know, this is part of the process we have to deal with. But the Bible gives us a way to deal with it. That's why the Bible says, hey, when you sin, it says if we confess our sins, if we go to God and say, God, I blew it, I'm sorry. It says that he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's funny when I talk to people sometimes about the Lord, don't know the Lord, and they'll say, well, I think when I get to heaven, you know, God's just going to forgive me. Why? Well, I just think, you know, I'm a good person. I try to help people out. And, you know, that wouldn't be a just God. See, if there's a, a, a sentence, there has to be, there's a penalty to it. There's a violation of the law. There's a penalty. What kind of judge would, would there be if, if, say, your neighbor came over and, and destroyed your car with a sledgehammer and you're in front of the court and your neighbor says, well, you know, I'm sorry. And the judge said, okay, case dismissed. You'd say, wait a minute. Wait, my car is destroyed. This guy destroyed my car. Isn't there any justice here? And the judge said, well, you know, he said he's sorry. Get over it. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be a good judge. There's consequences. And so when we fall, when we sin, there's consequences. That's why when we come to Christ and we put our faith and our trust in Christ, he has taken the consequences of our sin upon himself, the Bible says. He died on the cross. He became sin for us. 
so that we wouldn't have to bear that penalty and the weight of that sin. And part of the the thing that's encouraging is that God is slow to anger. He lets that whole thing play out. He's patient with us, even as believers, when we fall. Does he discipline us? Yes. If we continue to violate his word, we continue to violate principles that honor his name, yes, he will discipline us, just like a father would discipline his child if his child was doing something wrong. But he does so with love, and he does so with patience. And then the fourth thing here, it says the Lord abounds in love. Abounding in steadfast love. He loves more than we could ever even imagine. There's no love like God's love. I want you to understand when He saves, He saves completely. When He forgives He forgives all of your sin. When he sets you free, the Bible says that you are free indeed forever. The King James Version there in verse 8, it translates that last phrase of verse 8 by saying that God is plenteous in mercy. (laughs) Isn't that good? Plenteous in mercy. Spurgeon took that phrase and he offers this application. He says this, All the world tastes of his sparing mercy. Those who hear the gospel partake of his inviting mercy. The saints live by his saving mercy, are preserved by his upholding mercy, are cheered by his consoling mercy, and will enter heaven through his infinite and everlasting mercy. Isn't that incredible? Six kinds of mercy in just one sentence. Only Spurgeon could come up with something like that. That's that plenteous mercy that everyone needs. And it's available to us through Christ. Well, secondly, not only does God show mercy to those who don't deserve it, thirdly, in other words, he says, it says there he tempers his wrath in verse 9 and 10. Look at what it says. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You ever know anybody that loves to argue? Don't raise your hand, dear. (laughs) Because she knows me. That's what, what I'm implying there. But sometimes, you know, you run into people who just love to keep this quarrel kind of going. They're just so, so angry. I want to tell you that God is not like that. Our God is not like that at all. It says that he is willing to end the quarrel and welcome us back home. Just end it. Sometimes the real problem is that we want to keep fighting him. Have you ever seen a little, maybe a, a teenager or even younger, sometimes they when they get into their temper tantrum phase and they start throwing a temper tantrum and the parent has to physically grab them because they're almost going to either harm somebody or harm themselves and you see the parent grabbing them and they're still fighting and fighting and finally they just, the parent forcefully almost wraps their arms around that child and just holds them close and finally the kid just kind of turns like butter in their hand. They finally realize, okay, stop fighting. That's what God wants. He tempers his wrath against us. 
But sometimes we keep fighting. We, you know, we, we want to keep it going. See, he's more ready to forgive than we even need to be forgiven. You know, when, he, when we forget to pray, it's not like the food disappears from the plate, right? He continues to feed us. When we forget to give thanks, we're still able to go to bed and lay our head on a pillow and get a restful night's sleep. When our soul becomes idle in sin, He sends and has sent the Holy Spirit within us to convict us of that sin. When we refuse to give, (laughs) He just keeps on giving. When we fall, He lifts us up. When we disappoint ourselves and others, He still calls us His children. You know, He even blesses those who don't believe in Him. There's a guy by the name of Christopher Hitchens, and he wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And it sells a bunch of copies. This guy is clever. He's witty. He's a gifted wordsmith. Brilliant. Very widely read. Quick with the comeback. And completely committed to debunking religion of every type. Even more committed to the concept of God. And that it's simply just not necessary. But when you stop and you see the mercy of God, instead of crushing somebody like this, like an empty eggshell, which you could easily do, it's God, the Lord continues to provide for this individual, continues to give him health, love, life. See, it's the long-suffering of God that allows this author to even deny him in the first place. Why would God show so much kindness, so much love to someone who's utterly dedicated on eradicating any kind of God's influence on the world whatsoever? I mean, when you stop and you think about it, you know, sometimes, why wouldn't God just wipe out all the atheists? Why wouldn't God just wipe out all the the bad people. The Bible says that God withholds punishment to his enemies. And that too is evidence of his mercy. In, in Romans 2 verse 4, we sing a song that goes like this, but it talks about God's kindness. And it's God's kindness that leads us towards repentance. It's not the wrath of God or the anger of God that invites us to Him. It's His kindness. It's His forgiveness. It's His grace. And that's what sometimes it's hard for people to understand. You tell them about the free gift of salvation through Christ and that their sins can be literally wiped out. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, nothing's free. And it's hard for them to really understand that. 
They want to know what the little, you know, fine print is. What, are you, what I got to give everything to the church or what, what are you talking about? No. It's very simple. I mean, Jesus says, you know what? When you come to me with everything, not that he needs anything from us, but he wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants you to follow him and not your own agenda, your own self. And God, when you do that, tempers his wrath. Fourth thing here quickly, verse 11 and 12, this is where it gets exciting. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I mean, I think it's kind of neat that God forgives all of our sins. Not some of them, not one of them, not two of them. He forgives all of them through Christ. When you stop and you consider the greatness of God, I mean, we're talking about, you know, God forgiving little old me. Consider the greatness of God. I mean, when you stop and you think of science, you think of uh, astronomers, and they tell us that the farthest known light source from the earth is 10 billion light years away. That means that light starting from that source, a quasar, would take 10 billion years traveling at the speed of light to arrive at earth. I mean, that's just amazing to me. By By contrast, the nearest star is only four light years away from us. That's four years traveling at the light speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> Little fast. Light from the sun reaches the earth in a little over eight minutes. So even the nearest star in a vast, is, is a vast distance from the earth. And, and using ion drive propulsion, you could reach the nearest star in a modern spaceship in only 81,000 years. <laughs> See, I mean, you can look at this any way you want, but you're really left with some inescapable realities and truths. First of all, that we live on a tiny corner of the universe. And second, the universe is bigger than we can even comprehend it to be. They're always discovering new things. And I want you to understand this morning, but God's love is greater. It's vaster, it's larger, it's deeper, it's longer, it's broader. It's bigger in all dimensions than the universe itself. Go as far as you want to in your little spaceship as fast as you want to. And when you've gone as far as you can go, you look up and you smile, and God's love is still there. You never reach the end of it. Well, also, I want you to consider the magnitude of God's love. The magnitude of God's love. Suppose you want to go east until you finally reach the west. I mean, that's what it's saying, right? He removed it as far as the east is from the west, so that's got to be a a distance of something. So say you take off from the east coast in a hot air balloon. You land in Lisbon. You get in a Honda Civic and you drive 
across Europe until you come to Bulgaria. Then you hop on a freighter. That takes you through the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea, the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, and on the Gulf of Aden, where you narrowly escape getting caught by the pirates. You go into the Indian Ocean, where you finally put ashore in Sri Lanka. From there, you catch a flight to Singapore, and then down to Australia. There, you hitchhike across the outback, eventually arriving in Sydney, where you join a passenger ship heading for Easter Island. Then you fly to Santiago, Chile, where you rent a beat-up Jeep and start driving north. It's a long way, but eventually you make it all the way to Nome, Alaska, where you hire a dog sled team so you can run the Iditarod race in reverse, ending up in Anchorage. You hop on a cruise ship to Vancouver, British Columbia. From there, you take the Trans-Canadian Railway, ending up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. From there, you buy a high-end road bike, start pedaling through New Brunswick, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. Finally, you reach back to where you started on the East Coast. I mean, besides running around the globe, which would be kind of cool to do, what have you proved? Among other things, you proved that no matter how far east you go, you never find the west. That's how far God has removed our sins from us. Never the two should meet. The farther east you go, the farther you are from the west. See, that's the magnitude of God's love. And here's the the great news for all of us sinners in the world is when when God forgives us, He removes our sin. He lifts us up. He takes those sins away. And He puts them as far from us as we could never even find them if we searched for them for thousands of years. They're gone forever because of Christ's work on the cross. Our sins can never come back to haunt us again. The good news, even Satan can't bring them back. I read one sermon this last week, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. His points were this. First of all, verse 8 says God is slow to anger. That means God has a long fuse. Verse 9 says he does not harbor his anger forever. That means he's got a short memory. Third point in verse 10 says he does not treat us according to our sins as we deserve. That means God's got a thick skin. And then verses 11 and 12, it says that as far as he has removed our sins, so great is his love, it means he's got a great heart. A long fuse, a short memory, a thick skin, and a great heart. You know, I'm glad that God's on our side. I'm glad that we can be blessed with his forgiveness. Fifthly, he understands our weaknesses. Verse 13, it says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on on those who fear him. You may be sitting here today and say, well, you don't know my dad. <laughs> my dad knew nothing of compassion. I, sometimes I talk to my, my brothers. I was young, seven, when my father passed away, so I barely knew him. And I talk to some of my brothers at times, and they'll say, dad was a very hard man. Medical doctor, demanded excellence in everything. 
very, very hard man. And I asked my brother once, I said, what do you mean? He goes, do you remember when he used to read the, more, the Sunday paper after church in the living room? He'd sit in that blue chair by the fireplace. I said, yeah, I remember getting on his lap. And he goes, yeah. He goes, do you remember when you try to maybe reach out and touch the paper? What did he do? I said, no, I, don't, I was too young. I mean, at that point, I was probably three years old, so I, I don't really remember that. And he goes, oh, I, I remember. He goes, man, every time I'd go to, he, what are you doing? I'm reading the paper. Sit there and shut up. That's the way my dad was, I guess. Not that he wasn't a great man, he was. He provided for the family and everything. Very gifted individual. But I thought, man, I, I didn't know that aspect of my father. So maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, yeah, fatherhood and compassion don't go hand in hand with me. But see, that's the difference. God is a compassionate God. And it says that he is compassionate to those who fear him. Um, and I, maybe if you don't have children, you, it's hard to understand that verse. But if you've got kids, you know exactly what that verse is saying. Um, sometimes I think that you just have to remember that, you know, as imperfect as we are as earthly fathers, God is not an earthly father. He's a perfect father. When an earthly father has done his job well, he makes it easy for his children to believe in their heavenly father. So, you know, you, we want to stop and we want to, Understand that we serve a God who knows our weaknesses. And you know what? He loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. He understands our weaknesses. A great physician who knows our weakness and understands our fears. And then he, when we can't go on any further in life, he takes us and he carries us on his back. That's the God we serve. We should be thankful for that. Sixthly, he remembers that we are but dust. Remember when I said there are some things that God remembers that we forget? This is one of them, I think. He remembers that we are but dust. Look at verse 14 and 16. It says, as he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of a field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. I mean, that's kind of putting it right down where the rubber meets the road. The idea that, you know what, our life, we have all these plans, we have all these goals, we have all this big agenda that we're carrying out in our little, you know, plot of earth here on the earth. And we forget that, you know what, this is all temporary. This is not going to last. We're but dust. Our days are like the grass flourishes like a flower of the field and then the wind blows over it and it's gone. And even the place where it was doesn't even remember it. Back east this time of year, it's usually beautiful with the September, October with the fall foliage. Just incredible. I'm colorblind and I can see it. I just love it. And there's something about being back there and you see these green leaves dying and they're turning brown they're turning all sorts of different colors but their color if you know anything about it literally comes from their death you wouldn't have the beauty if the leaf didn't die i mean who remembers the leaf nobody 
Not even the tree. The tree doesn't remember it. One by one, they fall to the ground, and they're just turned into topsoil over a period of time. But for a small portion of time, they're, they're creating a beautiful environment, a beautiful picture. We need to remember that nothing lasts forever, that this, this, this land soon will be gone. Your life soon will be over. That's just the nature of life itself. And you can try as hard as you want for as long as you want to try to extend your life. But you know what? The Bible says that your days are appointed. God knows them. Nobody else knows them. I kind of like that idea. I wouldn't want to know when I'm going to die. Would you? Next Tuesday, 9 o'clock, boom, it's going to be over, Steve. So you better get ready. Man, can you imagine? You couldn't even enjoy anything. You'd be going nuts trying to get everything in order and all figuring out, you know, it, it would not be a good situation. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Our life is but a vapor, the Bible says. Here one moment, gone the next. See, that's why our hope is not in man. Our hope is not in this society. Our hope is not in our government or in our politics or anything like that. Our hope is in an everlasting God that, that transcends death, right? I mean, we, we look forward to heaven. Went to the doc doctor, doc, the back doctor last week. Try to, supposed to have another appointment tomorrow. Just had lower back pain for the last year and a half, and I just kind of grin and bear it, but I thought, well, I better go get it checked out. So they put you in this class, the way Kaiser does. You know, you got to go through the class to get any further. So I'm sitting in this class, and we're going through all this stuff, and people are asking all sorts of questions. Well, how can this pain go away? You know, he just got done explaining how the degenerative process happens in your spine and, you know, the things, um, you lose space and the bones and all this stuff, you know. So I'm sitting there going, well, this, this is, you're not telling me anything I don't know. Basically, what you're saying is you get old and you start to hurt. I mean, that's bottom line. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, I, I mean, I talked to the guy after. He was a doctor of physical therapy. So I went back in there afterwards, and I said, you know, I got this pain. I went through the whole thing, and, you know, he basically said, well, I'll get you another appointment, and he did with a, with a, a doctor, which I'm going to go to tomorrow morning. But I said, so basically, bottom line, that's what you're saying, right? You're just going to get old and it's going to... Yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you know, other than numb it, they can go in there and put shots and do all that kind of stuff. Or if, if you have a herniated disc or something, they can maybe fix that for you. But you know what? Over a period of time, gravity does its work, and you begin to ache. You begin to have pains. You begin to you know, feel things you never felt before. And that's just part of the process of life. There was a sign billboard alongside of a cemetery on a freeway, and it said this, slow down, we'll save a place for you. Because <laughs> it was kind of a speeding zone there, and I thought, wow, okay. You know, th that's true, though. I mean, there's going to be people that are part of our body this year that are going to be in glory next year. That's just the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Our hope is not in man. 
Because man can't do anything about it. Our hope is in an everlasting God. Our hope is not in the stock market. Hopefully that'll turn around. No, all that stuff is going to go bye-bye. All that stuff is, you know, you're not going to pull anything when you go to glory. There's not going to be a trailer. You're not going to have all your goodies packed away. It's not going to happen. They're going to be left here. Gone. And you'll be in the presence, if you know the Lord, in in the presence of, of the Lord Almighty. Well, the last thing, not only are we but dust, but it also says there that he links us with eternity by linking us with himself. Look at what it says in verse 17 and 18. 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And then it says this, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children's, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. I mean, there's nothing we can do about our, our bodies becoming more frail and all those things. I mean, we basically come stamped from the Creator, you know, fragile, handle with care. I mean, we are. But eventually, we're not going to be here anymore. Vitamins and exercise and clean living and all those things can maybe slow down the process. Maybe positive thinking can help you improve your mood. But in the end, it's going to be ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what happens. That may not be very encouraging, but you know what? It is if if you're in the Lord. If you've had your sins forgiven, if you know where you're going, if you know that when you leave this earth, you're going to be transformed and you're going to be ushered into the presence of God Almighty. See, Psalm 103 offers us comfort because it gives us those reasons to be thankful to the Lord. Notice there in verse 17 that but. You know, that's, that's such an important thing. But the steadfast love of the Lord. Yeah, we're not going to be here forever. Our life is but a vapor. But that changes everything. That one word offers an eternal contrast between the fading flower and the everlasting God. Where do you want to be? What side do you want to be on? Offers the contrast between our mortality and God's eternity. That word but really stands between this life and the next. And our hope should be in an everlasting God, a, a God whose tender mercy never stops, His unfailing love is boundless, His, His grace continues. Someone said that life without Christ is a hopeless end, but life with Christ is an endless hope. I mean, what are you going to leave your kids? Vast estate, large inheritance, big insurance settlement, what? That's how we think. I hope that your mind goes beyond that. I hope that you pray that your children will come to the cross of Christ. That they'll experience the mercy of God. 
Psalm 103 basically is telling us this, that we're richer than we think, we're more blessed than we know, and we have more than we even realize. And yet we're still these frail mortal sinners that are rich in the mercy of God. And we have that mercy because we found it in the cross of Christ. Story about Billy Graham in one of his sermons. He told a story about a patrolman on night duty in a town in northern England. And as he walked the streets, he heard this quivering sob. Shining his flashlight into the darkness, he saw a little boy in the shadows sitting on the doorstep. And tears were just running down his cheeks. And the child said, I'm lost. Please take me home. And the policeman began naming street after street, trying to get a fix, try to help the boy remember where he lived. He named the shops and the hotels in the area, but the little boy just didn't have a clue. Then he remembered that at the center of town there was a church with a large white cross that towered above the rest of the city. And the policeman took the little boy and he pointed to the cross and he said, do you live anywhere near that place? And the little boy's face immediately brightened up. He said, yes, sir, take me to the cross and I can find my way home. See, all that we believe, all that we have, all that we hope for is found in the cross of Christ. You come to the cross and you will find your way home. Are you weak? So am I. (laughs) Are you needy? So am I. Are you guilty? So am I. Are you frail? Guilty? Are you like dust? See, we're all the same. And God says to his weak, needy, guilty, frail, dusty children, you know what? I know you better than you know yourselves. I know you through and through. And you know what? I love you anyway. I love you Despite yourself, I want you to come to me. I want you to rest in me. I want you to make me your rock. I want you to make me your foundation. I want you to live your life for me. And you'll experience my forgiveness. You'll experience my mercy. You'll experience my grace. Because God's mercy through Christ is far more than enough for all of us to experience. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we celebrate thanksgiving this next week with relatives and friends if we're traveling i pray your traveling mercies upon us that you'd take us to where we're going and back safely pray you'd guard us as we're out and about against getting sick help us to be healthy for this season lord we pray for those who in our body who can't make it out on a regular basis on sundays and maybe they're in a care facility or retirement home or maybe they just are sick and and can't make it out, Lord, we pray that you would comfort their hearts, that you'd be gracious to them. Pray for this guy this morning, John. I pray that you'd minister to his heart. Lord, I pray that he would come to know you in a personal way, that he would experience your forgiveness. Lord, I pray for that for all of us here this morning, that we will come to that crossroad that we will understand that when we come to the cross, it's easy to find our way from there. But that's the first step. So Lord, we pray for each heart that's represented here this morning. You know what's in each heart. We don't. But Lord, I pray that you would 
make clear to them your forgiveness and your love and extend your grace to them, that you would grant them repentance. Help us as believers to never forget this lost and dying world we're living in and the need to go out and to share the good news of the gospel with those who've yet to hear. Father, I pray you'd bless this next week as we celebrate with family and friends. And we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.